Isaiah 41, verse 1 to 10. Be still before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with a hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so that it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right. Would you give a warm welcome to Amy? Let's just pray for Amy, shall we, as she comes to speak. Lord God, we thank you so much for her. And we pray that she would know you're refreshing, even as she speaks to us. So Lord God, please, would you fill her with your spirit? Would you use her? Uh, to minister to us? Uh, would you guide her in what to say? Lord, thank you that you are present with us now. And may we know you present with us, working amongst us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. And thank you so much, Jago, and the team here for your wonderful welcome. What a joy to worship together and see faith rising in the children. And um, yeah, wonderful to be with you. So the theme is, of course, refreshing the heart. And in this first session together, we're going to look at these verses from Isaiah chapter 41. Then after the break, we're going to look at a few verses from Isaiah chapter 43. And the focus in this first session is refreshing the heart, how God refreshes the hearts of his people with a focus on how he destroys fear, how God actually deals with, with our fear. These verses are amazing. I wonder if you have an underlined Bible. I um, 
very, it, it, you know, in a terrible, terrible thing to do as a visiting preacher, I left my Bible on the hall table as I rushed out this morning. And so I've got Jago's Bible here. And um, this verse 10 is underlined by, by your vicar, so you can be encouraged by that. <laughs> do, do not fear, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why are verses like that in the Bible? Probably because we're going to need it. God knows we're going to need to remember daily, to receive encouragement and strengthening by the power of his spirit through his word, that as the people of God, we're going to need to walk in truth and the truth of who God is. And as we do that, the fears, the circumstances, the difficulties of our lives are addressed and tackled. So in this, um, in this scripture together, we see in the first ten, uh, verses of chapter 41, we see two commands based on five foundations. So Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 has the preceding verses coming that intensify the point of this verse as a sort of build up as the prophet is writing. There are two commands in the verse 10 not to fear and there are five foundations of fearlessness. So don't, don't be afraid, fear not and don't be dismayed. Two, two commands. But as always in the Bible, in the scriptures, there are bases for the commandments. Commands don't just hang in the air with no basis in reality. If God is calling and commanding us to do something and to do something difficult like not be dismayed and not be afraid, there are going to be good reasons. And faith and power come through understanding and knowing what those reasons are. So here they are, the five reasons. Firstly, I am with you. I am with you. Secondly, I am your God. Don't be dismayed, or in some translations they put it, don't anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Thirdly, I will strengthen you. So not being afraid isn't just a human work. It's not us going, oh, I've got to just, you know, like squeeze out this fear somehow by a sheer force of will. No, I will strengthen you, says the Lord. Fourthly, I will help you. And fifthly, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So let's personalize this text for a moment. God is with me. I'm with you. God is with me. God will strengthen me, God will help me, and God will uphold me. So yes, the commandments are there, two commandments, don't be afraid, and don't anxiously look about you, don't be dismayed. But it's based on this reality that God is with you, God is your God, God will strengthen you, God will help you, and God will uphold you. Until late um, 2020, I would say that I hadn't ever really faced or experienced prolonged or overwhelming anxiety. I'd experienced nerves and natural fears, you know, that sort of fight or flight instinct that kicks in in a dangerous situation. And I'd had a few, few confrontations that were pretty frightening. So I knew what fear felt like, but I didn't really know what anxiety felt like. 
But in late 2020, I went through a traumatic experience. It was abusive, it was intense, and it happened over a period of time. It wasn't just a sort of one-off. And it was compounded by other lower-level kind of unkindness and hostility that sometimes we just face, don't we, in the course of life. And that was, that was happening on different fronts, but the cumulative effect as well as the wider context of kind of the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, it was profound, massively profound for me. And I needed help. I actually have needed trauma therapy, help from a, a brilliant psychologist who happens to be a Christian as well. And I benefited from weekly sessions for, for 18 months. Why are verses like this in the Bible? Because as people of faith, we are not immune from the challenges of this world. As people of faith, we're not going to be immune from mental health struggles, the, the kind of um, fear and anxiousness that might overtake us. I'm sure there'll be some in this room this morning who, when you hear that word, the, the theme of this conference, about a refreshing, refreshment coming from the Lord, what you need is actually for God to meet you in that place of, of anxiety and difficulty. There are going to be others of us in the room who don't necessarily experience that overwhelming fear and anxiety that's a very particular, specific thing. But we are, nonetheless, if we're alive today in 21st century Britain and in this cultural moment right now, according to the studies, according to what, what's going on in sociology, as a generation, we are going to be experiencing a high level of anxiety just even in the background of our daily lives. The Guardian put it like this, we're in the grip of an anxiety epidemic that predates Trump's presidency and the pandemic. The writer put, puts it like this, we've become so collectively consternated that a 2016 analysis led by the World Health Organization Estimated that without more treatment, 12 billion working days will be lost because of anxiety each year. And the study estimated the cost to the global economy up to 2030 as being 925 billion US dollars. So this pervasive anxiety in the Western world, in our globalized economy, in our context of affluence, is now registering economically, right? So it's real if the economists believe it's real. Now, um, other studies into, into this kind of pervasive anxiety have, have suggested that anxiety, a bit like spread, secondhand smoke, spreads and travels. Researchers at the Howard Friedman and Ronald Riggio, called Howard Friedman and Ronald Riggio from the University of California, Riverside, did a piece of research and that, that it found that if someone in your visual field is highly anxious and expressive, either verbally or non-verbally, they don't even have to say anything, there's a high likelihood that you will experience some of those emotions as well and they will negatively impact your brain's performance. We're living in an anxious generation the difference between uh, anxiety as a personal, clinical um, health issue suffered by a minority of people, and then this pervasive societal anxiety. 
Scholars like Friedman identify this pervasive anxiety as, as really kind of dominant in, our, in the Western world. He describes America as awash with worry. And he says, anxiety and fear have become so deep within the emotional processes of the nation that it's almost as though neurosis has been nationalized. That's how he put it. And he noticed in his, um, in his studies that part of the reason there's this just this rising sense of people being anxious around us is that in the West, for the last sort of, you know, six decades, let's say, the institutions that we've built in our democracies had a role of absorbing that collective anxiety. So our healthcare systems, our justice systems, our legal systems, our political systems. But as our confidence in those systems is shaken and diminished by what we read in the news, by what we see, you know, all the challenges faced by the health service, all the challenges in the justice system. I don't know if any of you have supported anyone in a, in a criminal trial, but if you have, you will know there are massive delays and massive pressures on all of these services. So as our confidence in institutions has gone down, so those institutions' ability to absorb our collective anxiety as a culture is reduced, and so just the level, the, the water level of anxiety all around us has gone up. So in the scripture, God speaks to his people. And of course, Isaiah is writing at a specific time in history. He's writing to the nation of Israel. But in Christ, through Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God. So we can read scriptures like this written in the Old Testament. And we can hear the voice of the living God speaking to us through his word. And he speaks to his people about how to overcome how to address fear. And the key to overcoming fear is leaning on the promises and the presence of God. The verses leading up to, chapter, uh, to verse 10 that we heard read brilliantly earlier for us intensify these promises. I'm with you. I will strengthen you. And they show us just how great and majestic God is. You see, as people of faith, our anxiety isn't going to be absorbed by institutional solutions. As people of faith, our fear is going to be addressed as we gain a picture of who this living God is and how he promises to strengthen us, be with us, uphold us. So this is, this is how Isaiah puts this, the structure of this promise together. So four perspectives from these first nine verses on who God is and his greatness as the focus um, as we're delivered from fear. So the first one comes in verse, in verse one. And this is that the Lord is the judge of all the earth. Verse one, God says, be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak and let us meet together in the place of judgment. Now, it's interesting to me, um, in our kind of evangelical and charismatic churches, in the last sort of two or three decades, we haven't had a, a great deal of theological focus on God as judge. 
fascinating to me that this is where Isaiah begins in addressing what it means to be afraid as human beings. The first thing he's pointing us to is that God is the judge. God is judge. There's a picture of God calling all the islands and all the nations together, gathering up all their strength to come and stand before him in judgment. So the one who says to me, I will strengthen you, I am with you, all of those promises we heard, is the judge of all the earth. Now, I believe that judgment is actually a huge theme in our current cultural moment. The fear of being cancelled is real, isn't it, for everyone? in our workplaces, for teenagers and young people, anyone who's operating in social media. There's this palpable fear that if in some way I cross the line, if I transgress even some sort of unwritten code, I'm afraid of the judgment, the bucket load of judgment that is going to come raining down on me. And one of the kind of dominant um, cultural lenses through which people now view the world is this idea of intersectionality. I don't know if any of you have heard that word before. And uh, what that word means is that you view situations, moral situations, and even what it means to be human. You view human identity through a lens of intersecting social injustice. So what it means to be human is to have suffered different layers of injustice and those layers and the way they intersect personally for you define who you are. If you were to run me through this way of looking at the world, intersectionality, you'd say, well, you're white and educated, so you're privileged. But you might say you're a, you're a woman who's often worked in a man's world. You maybe have experienced some sexism. So there's one layer of social injustice. And my father, I'm a daughter of a refugee who arrived in this country as a six-year-old with his family with only what they were standing up in. So my family has experienced some racism in this country and some disadvantage, so there's another layer. And if I were queer or a person of colour, I would experience further layers of intersectional social injustice. This is the dominant lens through which people see our world today. Of course, as Christians, that's not our starting place. That dissection of the injustice in the world isn't, isn't unhelpful. It's true that we experience layers of injustice. But as Christians, we don't believe those layers define what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to be made in the image of God. We have a positive starting point for identity. But in our world around us, as cancel culture rages and as intersectionality dominates our public and national life... We live in a context where we're afraid of the judgment of the mob. We're afraid of the judgment of the keyboard warrior. We're afraid of the judgment of the earthly oppressor. Perhaps we're aware of power discourses and power dynamics in our workplaces. And then layer on top of that, Putin flexing his muscles on the outskirts of Europe. And the first time in a long time as a generation, we're living with a war raging very much in our kind of field of what we know and who we know. And so our God says, do not be afraid. Do not anxiously look about you. Don't be dismayed. 
for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. And here's basis number one. I'm the judge of all the earth. He calls the nations to give an account of their lives. God is not on trial. The nations are on trial. This is the God who strengthens us. This is the God who is with us. And this is why we can live free of fear, even in this cultural moment, because our God is the judge, not the mob, not the oppressor, not the keyboard warrior, but a good God, a God who is filled with goodness, beauty and truth, who is a trustworthy judge. So we can lean into that promise. And that is one way as we look to him and as we begin to know him in his goodness as judge, fear begins to dissipate, begins to be released. The second thing we see about God comes in chapter, two, uh, chapter 41, verses 2 and 3. And this is that the Lord is the ruler of all rulers. Isaiah asks, who stirred up the one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands over nations to him. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Here is a picture of God rousing a king, leading him in conquest, delivering nations before him. And God is in authority over that ruler. So the God who has the power to deliver us from fear, to say to us, don't be dismayed, don't be afraid, is the ruler of rulers. That's who calls us not to fear and promises to strengthen and uphold and help those who look to him. Thirdly, we see in, in chapter 41 verse 4 that the Lord is the uncreated first mover. He is Yahweh. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4, Isaiah asks, who has done this and carried it through? Calling forth the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. So the picture of, is here of God not only judging nations, ruling the rulers, and calling the nations of the earth into being in the first place. God is the absolute reality before any other reality. And God is the one on whom every other reality depends. He's the primary, and we're the kind of secondary iteration. We're, we're created by him. We come forth from him. And this God gives us, in this context, his name. And the name used here is the name Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. Now, we don't have time to do a kind of big section on covenantal theology. But essentially, the covenant God in a covenant-making culture was the God who was unshakably and unbreakably for you. And covenants were, were made in blood and they were made with signs. You know, the closest two images of covenant we have in our culture today are a marriage between a man and a woman who, who stay together and um, till death do them part. They, they go through thick and thin together. That's meant to be a picture of how God contends with us and for us. And I think the second closest idea of covenant we see is actually in gang culture. In, you know, and you can see it in London. In order to join a gang, you have to go through an initiation process. There's often blood involved. There's often violence, some kind of violence involved. But once you're in the gang, if you walk down the street 
and someone steals something from you, they don't just steal it from you. You have the whole gang standing behind you. So you walk in the power of the covenant community that you belong to. So God is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, a bit nicer than a gang, sorry, not a great illustration, but in our culture, it's one of the closest um, iterations of, of this covenant idea we have. And he invites us into that relationship. So when things come against you, when oppressors rise up, when there's good reason to be afraid and dismayed, you do not stand alone. You do not walk alone because you're in covenant relationship with Yahweh, the living God. That's the God of Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 10, who says all these lovely things about strengthening in you and helping you. And there's real kind of ballast to it. And then fourthly and lastly, the Lord is the God who chose his own people. God has chosen his people, verses 8 and 9. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Did you notice that phrase when it was read out? Abraham, my friend. I took you from the ends of the earth, from his father's corners I called you and said, you're my servant. I've chosen you, I've not rejected you. You are chosen. You are not forsaken. You are chosen by this living God who judges the nations and rules the rulers of the nations, who calls people and nations into being. He chooses and invites you to belong. Now for us, ultimately, this is what God has done for us in Christ. The New Testament says he's chosen us and loved us before the foundation of the world and called us out from darkness and death. My husband um, is a wonderful person called Frog. That is not his real name. Um, His real name is Francis, but everyone knows him as Frog. And he grew up in a home where he experienced a lot of violence um, as a baby and um, as a young child. So he's a CPTSD survivor. And um, he was sent to boarding school and was quite happy at prep school, but by the time he got to Harrow as a 13-year-old, for a year, he was brutally and relentlessly bullied at every level you could imagine, and much of it absolutely unimaginable. Violence upon violence upon violence, fear upon fear upon fear, to the point where he was seriously contemplating ending his life. And a friend that he'd known for a, for, a, for a long time invited him to come on a Christian house party, probably a weekend, a bit like this. And while he was there, um, an artist called Charlie Mackesee, some of you I'm sure will, will know his work, this is quite a long time ago now, um, spoke to him about the love of the Heavenly Father and prayed for him and as he was prayed for the living God that Isaiah speaks of began to open my husband's heart and just pour his Holy Spirit into into his life in the most most amazing way and these are the words he heard the first ever words he heard the Lord say I want you to live I want you to 
wonder if there are any of us here this morning that need to... I wasn't going to share that testimony and just in the, at the beginning here felt very specifically there are maybe one or two of us that need to hear that. I want you to live. You've been created and chosen and called. Your life is worth something wonderful and beautiful. These are the perspectives of God's amazing greatness. He's the judge of all the earth. He's the ruler of the rulers. He's the uncreated first mover who brought peoples and nations into being. He's the God who chooses, who calls, who welcomes people, every single one of us in this room. That is the God who promises to strengthen you and uphold you and help you. So his word don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, is not a word of condemnation for those of us who struggle and suffer with anxiety. It is not a word of condemnation for those of us who are just swimming in the high water level of other people's very high cortisol levels and anxiety in this cultural moment. It is a word of strengthening and empowering because the God who judges the earth, who rules the rulers of history, who calls everything into being, who calls his people by name, says, I am your God. I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you. Amen. I'm just going to pray for us for a moment and then I'm going to take a quick break. Lord, we... We are amazed at who you are. And I, for one, am so thankful that you don't require us to pretend that we're not afraid or anxious, that things aren't difficult sometimes, but that through your word you speak into this real world and you promise to love us, to strengthen us, to uphold us, to help us with our fear and anxiety. In Jesus' name, amen.